So we're going we're gonna to continue our study as we saw in Matthew chapter 8 as we began this study here not so long ago, a couple of Sundays ago in regard to this important subject of using me, Lord, in the transformational work that you want to do in the lives of others. And so it, because today is Children's Day, I thought I'd kind of start off with a kind of funny story. Now, you've got to pay attention in order to catch up with this, all right? Are you ready? So, so pay attention. Keep your thinking cap on. So here we have a father who decided that he would go on a camping trip with his six-year-old son. Just him and his son going to go on a camping trip. So they pack everything and they go. And as soon as they fix their campsite, they get into the boat and they go out into the middle of the lake and they put out a line. They bait the hook and they put the line out and they go back to their campsite and they spend a couple hours at the campsite. And so the little boy is kind of anxious to see if there's any fish on the hooks. And so they get in the boat and go out after a couple hours. And sure enough, as dad raises the line, there are several fish that are there. And so he takes the fish off. They they, uh, they began to talk, and the little boy said, You know, Daddy, I knew there would be fish on, these, on this line when we came here. Dad said, You did? He said, Yes, sir, I did. He said, How did you know? He said, Because I prayed. So the dad put the, you know, the bait back on the hook, threw the line out, then went back to the campsite, and they stayed for a couple hours. And, and so the little boy was kind of anxious again, and so they got in the boat, went out there to check the line somewhere around mid-afternoon, and sure enough, there were fish on the line. And the little boy said, Dad, I knew there would be fish on the line when we came out to check. He said, you did? He said, yes, sir, I did. He said, how did you know? He said, because I prayed. So the dad threw the line back out, and they went back into the campsite. And just before dawn, the little boy said, let's go check the line one more time, Dad. So they got in the boat and went out there. And the dad raised the line up, and sure enough, there were no fish. And the father looked at the little boy, and he said, son, did you pray? He said, no, sir, I didn't pray. He said, why didn't you pray? He said, because I knew there wouldn't be any fish on the hook when we came out to check. He said, well, how did you know there would be no fish on the hook when we came out to check? He said, because you forgot to bait the hook. Yeah. You know, the point of the story is this. You can do a lot of praying, but unless we put bait on the hook, there will be no fish. I don't know how many times you've been fishing, but I don't know of too many fish that, bait, that bite anything without something on the hook. For you see, we must put something on the hook before we cast the line in order to catch any fish. Jesus said that when he called his disciples, he would make them fishers of men, right? And so we are fishers of men and women, people who desperately need to know Christ. But we must join the activity of God in order for there to be any fish that God's going to catch. For we can intercede all day long, but unless we join God in what God wants to do in redeeming a lost humanity, there will be few, if any, who will be caught with the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, it takes our participation. I don't know why God in his sovereign design or his plan in which he included us in this process because you see that puts on us a responsibility to then be a part of what God is going to do. We must ourselves join God and what God wants to do through us to redeem a lost humanity and if we fail to join God in this redemption process then I wonder how many fish will actually be caught, how many disciples will actually be made, how many people will actually be transformed by the gospel of Christ. 
We must join God. We must participate. We must be willing to say, God, use me, Lord, in the transforming work that you want to do in the lives of others. Last week, we had the whole message was about intercession, and we identified 10 people that we're asking you to intercede for, to pray for, to appeal to God for their salvation or for their redemption. But prayer simply by itself is not going to fulfill or accomplish the redemptive process that God wants to do in those ten lives. It involves us saying to God as we pray for them, Lord, use me in this redemptive process. Provide an avenue, provide an opportunity, provide a means, provide a way by which you can use me in order to redeem these people. They have a problem called sin, and it is a problem that can be transcended if we will join God in that transformational work. So my question is, can God use you in that redemptive process? The responsibility and the burden is on us. Can he use you? Or chances are you know people right now that God wants to touch through you in this redemptive process. And unless you and I step forward and yield to his to this availability where God can use us, this redemptive process is, is, is going to be hindered. It's going to be hurt because God, I believe, if he wants to redeem them, will use someone else and rob us of the joy and the blessing of being a vessel and an instrument that God wants to do and use to make that happen. So don't be robbed by the blessing of being a part of the redemptive process that God wants to use through you to reach and to touch people with his transforming work. Let's go to the passage this morning, and let's sort of set it up. In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 8, we find that there are several narratives in which this passage sort of unfolds. We find, if you study the Scriptures and know about the Gospels, that Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record pretty much the same thing. Now, we discover in this, this Gospel narrative of Matthew, where we discover where 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 Matthew is a little bit shorter, he's, he's a little bit less wordy. That's probably why I like Luke. He's a little more wordy than Matthew. Imagine that. And uh, Mark records it as well as Matthew and Luke, but Luke is a little bit more wordy. And Luke gives us somewhat of a foundation to build upon as we come into the narrative that we're going to be studying today in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 8, beginning with verse 14. So let's, let's jump over to Luke, and let's see in Luke 4 how we then lay a foundation for what's about to happen. Now, we have already surmised in the last several Sundays where Jesus has completed his Sermon on the Mount, Right? And uh, the people were amazed, they were astonished, they were in awe of his authority. He didn't teach like the scribes, but he became an authority, he spoke as an authority. And Jesus walks from that scenario, the Sermon on the Mount, on his way to a city called Capernaum. We've already identified that city as the hometown of Simon Peter and Andrew and James and John, who were four fishermen who conspired together in a in a an adventure called fishing chips, and so they had a fishing business together. And Capernaum was the hometown of these four disciples, and it was the home base for Jesus. And following this incredible ministry on the Sermon of the Mount, he's walking down the, the narrow roads to Capernaum, and he is interrupted by a leper who steps out of the crowd in the gospel narratives, where he asks Jesus for healing. And Christ heals him of his leprosy. It is a, an amazing, miraculous transformation. 
Christ transcends the leprosy and transforms this leper into a whole, into a healed man. Following that, he enters into Capernaum, and we learned last Sunday that as he enters into the city, sort of city limits, he is confronted by a centurion who has a servant who is in desperate need of Christ. And he requests Christ to heal his servant, yet Jesus, at a distance, heals the centurion's servant. I call it long-distance healing. And so that's a, a miraculous thing. Following the centurion and asking for healing of his servant and Christ healing that servant, Jesus, because it is the Sabbath, enters into Capernaum. There is a synagogue in Capernaum, and Jesus, being true to his not only his tradition but his practice, goes to the synagogue to attend church on the Sabbath. Now, some of us might think, you know, I don't really need to attend church on our Sabbath. We don't worship on Saturday. We worship on Sunday. Jesus could always be found on the Lord's day in the Lord's house with God's people studying God's word. He set an example for us. That's why I mentioned earlier where the Bible says, Forsake not the assembling of yourselves together as the habit of some. There were some early on in the foundation of the church where some were beginning to skip church. Now the norm today is two Sundays out of the month we're going to attend the assembly and gather with other believers. I'm convinced that's not a norm that's healthy for you as a disciple, much less productive for you as a disciple. And so Jesus had a custom on the Sabbath of not forsaking the Lord's day, and he went to the synagogue to worship. Now, as he enters into the synagogue, unlike us here, the people, when they gathered in Jesus' day, they would gather and they would sit in their usual customary places. Some of you have customary places. Please, if anyone happens to sit in your place on a Sunday morning, you don't give them the, the evil eye until they get out of your place. We don't have assigned seats here, but I can imagine that in this small synagogue, there were people that had their usual places to sit, five rows down, in the middle aisle on the left, three seats over. And so they got in there and they began to assemble. And in Jesus' day, they awaited someone to then enter to teach. And when they gathered on the Sabbath, on the Lord's Day, they didn't know who was going to teach. It could be anybody. And true to Christ's custom, when he entered into the synagogue, guess who's going to do the teaching? Jesus. And so Jesus steps up on the center stage, into the spotlight, takes the Bible, and proceeds to teach. And as Jesus is teaching in the synagogue, according to Luke chapter 4, he says they are amazed. They are in awe again because he's teaching with authority. Unlike the scribe who might have taught in his place on that Sunday, who would always back up what he was teaching by this scholar and that scholar and this and that and this and that to prove his case and to position his point. And as he was finishing up, Luke chapter 4 informs us that someone steps into the church. Now this person who steps into the church, Luke describes as someone who is possessed with a demon. Now, Luke tells us that this demon is an unclean demon. I thought about that. Is there any demon that's not unclean? Is there a clean demon and an unclean demon? I don't think so. You know, I've watched some of these idiotic type things for very short minutes. There are good witches and bad witches. I don't know if there's good or bad. They're just bad. If you're a witch, there's bad witchcraft. There's no good witchcraft. 
if, if there are demons, there are no good demons. They're all unclean, wicked, evil, vile demons. There, there's no way that we can somehow position the demonic as if they were something productive or something good. It is an unclean demon that has possession of this man, according to Luke chapter 4. And as he steps into the, the synagogue, it's interesting that Luke records for us that he begins to shout out. He begins to scream. Notice what he says in verse 34. Ha, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Here's a demonic presence in this man using his vocal cords to profess Jesus as the Holy One of God, the promised Messiah. Jesus then rebukes him and he says, Be silent and come out of him. And immediately the man goes into convulsions. The demonic spirit leaves the man and he is cured. He is healed. He is set free from the possession and the control of the demonic force. And the Bible says they were amazed. They were amazed. Not only were they astonished by his teaching, but now they were amazed at his power over demons. And Luke records for us in verse 37, and reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. I can imagine when church dispersed that day, it was the Sabbath, keep in mind. And after they worshiped in the synagogue on the Sabbath, they went home to observe the Sabbath. That was the tra tradition, that was the custom. They didn't go to any restaurant like some of you are about to go. They went home. And there was a certain meal that was a kosher meal that they observed as a family. And so I can imagine that as people left church that day, there were some who followed Jesus to see where he was going to go following the Sabbath. They wanted to know where Jesus was. And some followed Jesus more than likely, the Bible says, that he went to Andrew and Simon Peter's home. And after noticing where he went, they ran to their home and observed the Sabbath. Now keep that foundation in mind with the passage that we're about to read. It brings us up to where we need to be in Matthew's account of this narrative and what happens next. Notice what happens next. God is about to use a family, some family members and some friends to bring other people to the presence of Jesus to be touched by the power of Christ. Let's take a look at the narrative. Now, to see lives transformed... That's the question. To see lives transformed, I must first uphold the power of Christ. If we truly want to see those that we care about, to see their lives transformed, we must uphold or uplift the power of Christ. There is no other power other than his power who can transcend my friend's need, my family's need, and transform them by the power of the gospel of Christ. There is no other power. You see, probably what we often have a tendency to do is we go to other sources, to other people, to other things, rather than first going to Christ. And there is no one that can take his place in the transcending of the need and the transforming of the life. For only Jesus and his power can transform, not only in this life, but for all eternity, the lives that we care about. Let's go to the concern of one. And let's notice the power of Christ to transform one life. 
This one life is a mother-in-law. How many of you have mother-in-laws? How many of you are thankful for your mother-in-law? Don't lie in church. Okay. We're not going to do any mother-in-law jokes. Because I love my mother-in-law. I hope she's watching today. She's at home, stuck in Kentucky up there in a blizzard. Thank the Lord we live in Wichita. And uh, so I I love my mother-in-law. And uh, so I'm not going to make any mother-in-law jokes. But here we go. The power of one, a mother-in-law. Notice the narrative described in Matthew's gospel, chapter 8, verse 14. And when Jesus now entered Peter's house, following the synagogue and the demon-possessed man, and they followed to his house to see where he was, he entered into Peter's house. He saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. Now you take the narrative described in Mark chapter 1, verse 30. Mark sort of describes a little bit differently, not that they're not compatible, but they just have a way of describing certain things that they notice. Mark says in Mark 1.30, and immediately they told him, Jesus, about her, the mother-in-law who was sick. And Luke's narrative, chapter 4, verse 38, and they, the family members who were there, appealed to him on her behalf. Now you put the three narratives together, and this is what you conclude. First of all, you see the the proximity that Jesus had in relation to the mother-in-law. You see, James and John and Andrew and Simon Peter were with Jesus up on the mountain. They traveled to Capernaum, that long, dusty little road, several miles, and they entered the city and had several encounters with the synagogue, and now they get home. They don't know, Simon Peter does not know that the mother-in-law is sick. There was no texting, there was no cell phones, there was no email, there was no internet, there was no, no nothing like that, okay? So they didn't know. And so and as soon as they come in, Jesus now is very close to the mother-in-law. Notice the proximity. He comes into the house and notice the priority. We see that they immediately are told about the mother-in-law. As soon as they walk in, guess what? Jesus is there and Jesus now can heal our loved one. Jesus can heal us. He immediately found out. Notice the Bible says they appealed to him. They interceded. They not only told Christ about their family member, but they implored him. They appealed to him. They interceded on her behalf. She was not able to get up out of bed and to welcome Christ as he walked in. Someone had to go to Christ and plead her case. These family members were pleading her case before Jesus. And Jesus, we're told, gets up and goes to her bedside and is about to attend to their loved one. Christ cares about one person who needs him. That means he cares about you. I think we have a tendency to believe that God cares about the masses, but he doesn't really care about me. Or he may care about others, but he doesn't really care about my loved one. But here we have a family member whose loved one desperately needs a transformational touch from Christ. They appeal, they intercede, they plead on her behalf, and Christ, in all of the concern of a Savior, steps out, walks in, and attends to their petition, to their intercession, to their request. The concern for one. Let's note not only the concern for the one, but let's look at the compassion for many. For I think we have a tendency to think that God cares for the one, and that one is me, but how does he care for others? How does he respond to the needs of the many who are out there? 
For there are many who have needs, not just you and not just me and not just us, but the many. And notice the power of Christ to change many and how he's compassionate for the many. Verse 16 in Matthew chapter 8. Skip down a couple of verses. Let's take a notice at the many. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons. Notice that word. And that evening they brought many who were oppressed by demons. Notice Matthew talks about being oppressed by demons. Matthew's account in verse 32, chapter 1 says, as he recounts that that narrative, that, that incident, that evening at sundown, when the evening fell, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. Now look at Mark's account, I mean Luke's account of the narrative, which you don't have on your screen because they didn't have enough space. But look at Luke 4.40. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him. So, put all the narratives together. What's the time frame? What's the period that now we're addressing? The period is after the Sabbath. Remember they were in the synagogue and after that it was time to go home and observe the Sabbath. So they all went to their homes as according to tradition, according to the law, and they observed the Sabbath. And now that as evening fell, what we understand is when the sun begins to set, that is the end of the Sabbath. Now they can leave their homes and seek Jesus. They had to wait. You ever have to wait? Have you ever had to wait? Let me ask you something. Have you ever really had to wait? And sometimes minutes seem like hours, and hours seem like days. And some of us have been waiting for days, weeks, and months. But there's something that transpires in our lives as we wait on our opportunity. And the period here is that the sun set and the Sabbath was over, and now they have permission by the Father to seek out the Son. Notice now the place that they go to. Where do they go? They go to Simon Peter's home, to Andrew's home, where James and John are with Simon Peter and Andrew. And there the four are there with Jesus. The mother-in-law has been, has been healed by now. And they then come and they knock on the door. And they're, they're looking for Jesus. But notice in the narrative, who are the people? All it describes is the they. Who are the they? Well, the they are the ones that are not in the home. It's not James and John. It's not Andrew and Simon Peter. It's not really the disciples. It's the people that live in the community. And I thought about who are the they. The they are probably the, the husbands who need, who need healing for their wives. Or it's probably the fathers or the mothers who need healing for their children. Or it's probably the the neighbor who's needing a healing for his neighbor. He's been concerned and he's been praying about his neighbor. And now he has brought him to Jesus. Maybe it's a laborer who has a co-worker who is in desperate need of Christ. And he's heard about Christ and what he's done in the synagogue. And he believes in the power of Jesus and he brings him to Christ. My question to you is, who do you know that desperately needs Christ? Is it a a spouse? Is it a a father? Is it a mother? Is it a brother? Is it a sister? Is it a neighbor? Is it a co-worker? Who is it that desperately needs Christ whom God has placed in your life so that you might be the catalyst or the instrument, the vessel, the tool that God could use you to bring them to him so that he can transcend their problem of sin and transform their life not just now but for all eternity? For he had compassion on the many. Notice the person to whom they brought him. They didn't bring 
their loved one or their friend or their neighbor or the co-worker. They didn't bring him to, to Andrew. They didn't bring him to Simon Peter. They didn't bring him to James. They didn't bring him to John. They brought him Jesus. You know, in the men's breakfast yesterday morning in Mark chapter 9, we talked about a man who brought his child to Christ, but Christ could not be found because he was in the Mount of Transfiguration. He wasn't there. And the disciples tried to heal and cast out, you know, and, and, and to create, you know, a healing and a transformational work. But they were unsuccessful. There was an argument that ensued, and Jesus steps into the scene. And, 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 and as a result of that, the father finally confesses, I believe, but help thou my unbelief. Is that your confession today? Lord, I believe in your power, but help thou my unbelief. Because I have a spouse that I've been awaiting you to heal for quite some time. I've been, been praying and interceding for you to transcend their issue and transform their life. I have a, a father or a mother who is lost and desperately in need of Christ. I have a brother or sister who has, who has rebelled like the prodigal son. And I've been interceding and I've been waiting on you. And, and now I believe they are so far gone that they're untouchable by you. I'm here to tell you there's no one that's get, that is beyond the power of Christ to transcend their problem and transform their life. No one. For this family member saw their loved one, she was lying in bed close to death. These, these people in this community who had these friends, they knew that Christ could transcend the problem and transform the life. And so they, unless Jesus did it, it could not be done. Christ has the power to transcend whatever it is you're asking for in someone's life. And he can transform their situation and release them from their bondage and help them live for him. Uphold the power of Christ. Secondly, we need to then embrace or to satisfy the purpose of Christ. There's a sort of satisfaction that needs to come within our own lives for Christ came to satisfy the purpose of God. He didn't come simply to satisfy his own purpose, but there was a purpose for which he was sent. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him might not perish but have everlasting life. What was the purpose of God in sending his son to redeem a lost humanity? And there was a purpose that Christ came to live out and to fulfill in his life, in his message, and in his ministry. And Matthew helps us understand that what Christ was doing was that he was satisfying the purpose of God. And now we as the disciples of Christ have been called to satisfy his purpose, not ours. Our purpose must be his purpose. His purpose is not simply to grow a large church. His purpose is not simply to raise a large budget. His purpose is not to build a big building. His purpose is to reach a lost culture and a lost generation with the gospel of Christ to transcend the problem called sin and transform lives. And we must be about that purpose as well. Look at the purpose of God revealed through Christ. Matthew masterfully records this for us. This is a summation now of all that God gave through the prophets. Daniel, Isaiah, all the prophets of the Old Testament. Notice the purpose revealed. Matthew clearly articulates that in verse 17, Matthew chapter 8. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. 
why would he record this and, and nestle this here in this narrative at this particular point in his writing? You see, you've got to understand the people that he was addressing, he was writing this gospel for the Jewish community. He wanted the Jews, the Jewish community, to take this gospel of Matthew and to read it and to digest it and to absorb it, not only to learn from it, but to be transformed by the, by the power of the gospel presented through his writing. And his, his target was the Jewish community. And so because that was his target in his gospel presentation, what he does here is he writes it in such a way in this narrative in which he addresses now to them, the Jewish community, this is a fulfillment of Isaiah 53. He says, I want you to go to those messianic verses and I want you to know that what Christ is fulfilling is the purpose of God because you see, they have been long awaiting the Messiah to come and they have been looking at these verses, they've been studying these verses and wondering, when is it going to be here? And Matthew is saying, he's here. He's here. Jesus is the fulfillment of these prophecies. If you take a look at Matthew chapter 1, and I think the verse is verse 23, he early on mentions the prophetic writing. Just in the very opening sentences of his gospel message, indicating that this Christ came to be the Savior of the people. For Christ came to be the Savior. And so Christ is fulfilling now the purpose of God in this ministry so that through him, people might recognize him as the Messiah, as the Savior, as the long-awaiting one whom they are anticipating his arrival to redeem them and to rescue them from their plight. Not possibly their sin, but their plight. And Peter records that for us. He said he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds. We have been healed. The healing that he's talking about is a spiritual healing. And, and, and what he's helping them and us realize is that while not all sickness is a result of sin, let me say that again, not all sickness is a result of sin. So if your spouse gets sick this week with one of these plagues going around, okay, a sniffly nose or a coffee chest or whatever, don't look at them and say, what you been up to? Come on, confess it. What's your sin? Because not all sickness is a result of sin. But some sickness is a result of sin. But what he's trying to address is that while Christ came to heal all of their diseases, the primary disease that he came to heal was that disease called sin. And what he did on the cross is he took upon himself our sin, died in our place, so that we might then be healed from the disease called sin. That was his purpose, and it's revealed in Christ. So we've seen the revelation, who is Jesus. Now let's look at those who received it, because the mother-in-law received it, and the masses received it, as we see recorded for us in 8.15. The mother received freedom from her enslavement. Matthew records the recipients of the purpose of God. Notice verse 15. He touched her hand and the fever left her. He touched her hand and the fever left her. Mark helps us understand what happened in verse 31. And he came and looked 
took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her. Luke helps us then understand a little bit more in verse 39. And he took and he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. So let's take the narratives together and let's define and describe exactly what happened. Because Matthew doesn't record it all, and Mark doesn't record it all, and Luke doesn't record it all, but you put the narratives together, and you can then surmise exactly what happened. Notice that Christ stood over her. He walked in the room, and he stands over her. Why is he described as someone standing over her? Because he is sovereign. He is Lord over the disease. He's Lord over the woman who is about to die. He is Lord, and it's beneath him, and he is above him. Notice his authority, and notice now... It is described that he reached out and he grabbed her or he touched her, symbolic of his sympathy, his empathy toward the one who is in desperate need of healing. Jesus cared. He cares. He's not unconcerned, but he's sympathetic about those who need him. But notice he lifted her. Why did he lift her? It's to demonstrate his strength. He lifted her from her infirmity, and he healed her. He was supreme over the disease. He transcended her disease, and he transformed her. He cured her. He healed her. He released her from her burden and from her pain. She received the purpose of God in her life. But the masses also received. What did they receive? What did they realize? Verse 16. That evening, Matthew records in verse eight, chapter 8, verse 16. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. You look at Mark chapter 1, verse 33 through 34. Mark records it this way, and the whole city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many who, you know, that's a lot of people that come knocking on your door. The whole city was gathered. Wow, a lot of people. Hopefully it's like where I live in Rose Hill. That's not that many people. If it were Wichita, there'd be a whole bunch of people. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick and of various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. The demons knew him. Luke records it in verse chapter, 40, chapter 4, verse 40. And he laid hands, Jesus, on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many crying, you are the son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. Christ reveals his power and his purpose to the masses. And his, he, he is indicating in this passage, Matthew is, that Christ has power over sickness. Christ has power over disease. And he says various diseases. What does that mean? That means many. You know, it would take too long to list them all. And so he just says various diseases. And Christ has power over sickness and disease. But what I like here is that Christ has power over satanic forces, spiritual forces. Christ has power over the demons who many were inflicted with these diseases because of satanic oppression and suppression and possession in their lives. We read a narrative like that and we think that was good for them back then, but what does that have to do with us? The scary thing is that there are probably some of us in here this morning that don't even believe in a literal hell. Probably true. 
Some of us give no thought of the devil at all. Some of us don't have any regard at all for Satan, much less demons. And we think that Satan and demonic activity is something in the Old Testament, is something maybe in the day of Jesus, but it's not a reality today. I don't know how you can say that if you don't watch your television and just watch what ISIS is doing. That's as demonic as anything as I've ever seen in my life. These people are filled with demons. And I watch the president's address, and I'm not very political at all. But I tell you what, the problem that we have with people like them, it isn't an economic situation. It's a depravity situation. They are depraved, and they are filled with demonic spirits. And it's that demonic activity that is reflecting itself in its ugly head. And if you'll come to my class, we can learn more about how Satan and his demonic influence will help. How'd you like that commercial, Mike? Just thought I'd put that in there. Ephesians 6 says that we wrestle not. We wrestle not with physical forces. What do we wrestle with? With demonic forces, with supernatural forces. And we're here learning that Jesus has power over demonic spirits. And I'm here to tell you that in the end, I have learned in the book of Revelation, in Ezekiel and in Daniel, that in the end, Jesus wins. Christ wins. We operate from victory, not defeat. We are more than conquerors, and we are winners because Christ died on the cross and rose from the grave, and now in Christ, we are more than conquerors. We are victors. We have overcome, and while we may wage war against the enemy, we're going to learn tonight that, that the enemy is powerless, powerless to alter, to disrupt are to hinder the purpose, the plan, and the power of God. He is powerless. He does not win. And I find it interesting, as we saw in this narrative in Luke chapter 4, that a demon-possessed man enters into the place of worship. There is no place that we can hide. There is no safe haven. You can't build a, a, a... a wall around yourself and bring up the mode and only let those that you know and you like and who in. I mean, they're, they're among us. And I'm not saying literally among us, but, you know, I was pastoring a church a couple of years back and I was told by someone that said, Pastor, let me tell you that we have some witches who come to church on Sunday morning and they sit in the balcony and they pray against you while you preach. I'm not sure that was true. I, I don't know. But I thought it was kind of fun. It didn't bother me one bit. I know when I pastored in a, another city, which is the center of, 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 of New Age for the Southwest, all right, Santa Fe, that, that some of them came and tried to intimidate us by leaving articles of their own depravity in our place of worship on our facility trying to sort of intimidate us. We shouldn't be afraid. And there are demonic forces at work all around you. They're all around you. And we need to become the warriors that God has called us to become and advance the cause of Christ. Because the chances are there's somebody you know right now that is oppressed, oppressed, or possessed by the devil, 
And the only way they can be released is through the power of the gospel of Christ and the spirit of Christ who can release them. It's a reality today. And it's about time the church, the biblical church, wake up to that reality, not let those wacko, crazy, insane people see demons in every bush rob us of the power that Christ gave us and the position that he gave us to overcome these satanic influences in, the, in our lives and the lives of those people that we love and we care about. Lastly, we need to execute the priority of Christ, and I'll close with this. You know, Matthew records in 2028 that Jesus himself said that the Son of Man came to say, to, he, he came not to be served, but he came to serve. Matthew 20, 28. He said the Son of Man came to be to be a servant. He didn't come to be served. I mean, if Christ is who we are emulating, if he is our Savior and our Lord and the one whom we are following, and he said that he came to be a servant, not to be served. And if anybody deserved to be served, it was Jesus. And some of us who are Christ followers think that we're the cat's meow. We are so narcissistic that we believe that the universe revolves around us and that it's all about us and that we are the ones who demand service. Jesus said, I came to serve, not to be served. And if you think you are here to be served, then you're not like Jesus at all. For Jesus came to serve, not to be served. Notice what he says in Matthew 18, 15. The mother-in-law, he says, And she rose and began to serve him. Isn't that interesting, don't you? As soon as she was healed, what did she do? She started serving. Mark records it in 31, And she began to serve them. Luke says, and immediately she rose and began to serve them. So you put the narratives together. Her service was, first of all, immediate. It was immediate. Upon her transformation, she started serving. She didn't have to be convinced. She didn't have to be talked into it. She didn't have to be arm twisted. She didn't have to be sold. She just got up and immediately started serving. Are you serving? It was an immediate response. It was intentional. And the intentionality is she started serving Christ. Christ is the one whom she was seeking out to serve. We don't serve others. We don't serve ourselves. But we serve Christ. And when we take on the towel and we bow in humility, and we act in service, we are doing our service as unto him. Notice also that it was inclusive because she not only served Christ, but she served them. She humbled herself, started serving them, everyone in the house. Why? Out of gratitude, out of love out of a desire to be useful. And for those who are not serving, I question their gratitude. I question their love, their passion, their devotion for Christ who gave everything for them to be healed. And then notice chapter 8, verse 18. Notice how it demands, it demands service, the party of Christ demands service, but the party of Christ demands surrender. And 
I'm going to read this narrative and just talk about it very quickly, I promise. Verse 18, now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to let to go over to the other side. There's a decision here to move. I mean, Christ notices the crowd are getting a little unruly here. I mean, it, it's chaos. The whole town is gathered there, and there's a lot of stuff going on, and people are probably elbowing and saying, I'm next, and they're having a hard time, and Jesus is beginning to realize it's dangerous and probably distracting. And why do I say distracting? Because any time we are so involved in ministry that we're not proclaiming the message, the ministry is not the priority, the message is the priority. And there are many of us who have good intentions, and we seek to minister. But in spite of our ministry, if we're not proclaiming the message, the ministry is of no value. Because Christ didn't come just to minister, he came to proclaim a message. The ministry was to enhance and to support and to strengthen his message. I am the Messiah, and because I am the Son of God and, 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 and who I claim to be, listen to me and what I have to say. We can't get wrapped up in the ministry and forget about the message, for the message is the gospel. That was the movement that Christ made to go to the other side of the sea. But notice verse 19, and a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Here's a... A moment of declaration, this, this man, just this religious zealot, the scribe, steps out and he makes a decision. I will follow you wherever you go. Notice that, wherever. I mean, he has good intentions. I'll follow you wherever. That wherever is a huge word, isn't it? Wherever you go, whatever you ask, whatever you add, whatever you take away, it's all yours, wherever you leave. Notice Jesus' response because Jesus didn't always say, come, follow me to everyone who, who committed, who you know, if, if it was a church service today and somebody said, I, I want to follow Jesus wherever he leads, we would take him in, we'd dunk him in the baptistry, we'd sign him on a card, and we'd pat him on the back, and we'd give him a big King James Bible, and we'd have him on his way, wouldn't we? Not what Jesus did. You know, wait a minute, dude. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man, me, has nowhere to lay his head. His deficiency was that he forgot to count the cost. Hey, I'll follow you wherever. Wherever? Wherever. Well, let me tell you where that's going to take you, buddy. It's going it's to demand everything. Jesus said, if, unless you're willing to take up my cross and follow me, you're not worthy of me. It's a cross? Yeah. Oh, well, wait a minute. Uh, I didn't sign up for a cross. I didn't sign up for sacrifice. I didn't sign up for denial. I didn't sign up. I, I want to be like everybody else. I want to live this life and do this and go here and say that and think that and watch that and become that and, and, and do whatever. No, it's, it all, it's all or nothing. And, and his deficiency was that he forgot the cost. He forgot to count what it, what it cost. And Jesus said in, in the Sermon on the Mount, why, why would you build, you know, go out and build something and not count the cost of building it as you're beginning to build it, right? What a foolish thing to do. Notice the relational man, not just the religious man, and another one. Another of the so-called would-be disciples said to him, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first go and bury my father. That guy, he didn't count the cost, but I, I've counted the cost and I'm willing. But you know what? I, I've got a priority here. I've got, I've, got a, I, I've, I've got a desire here, and that desire is for my family. I, I've got a dad 
who's not dead, but he's about to die. He's an elderly father. He's, he's not doing too well, and I'm going to follow you, but i got to go back home and wait for my dad to die. Notice what Jesus says to him. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Matthew chapter 10, Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you've got to put me first before your father, your mother, your brother, your sister, your spouse, your family, your children, everything. And there have been many who would have loved to follow Jesus, but they didn't because of family relationships. So, as we close, it's time. Can God use you in the transforming work he wants to do in others? Can he? Can he? It's another list. Last week we asked you to pray for 10. Do not put this in the offering plate at the end of the service. It's to take home, put in your Bible, and to use it as a prayer guide. Okay? We got about 20 or 30 last week. We're not going to bring them up here. Don't put them in the offering plate. Take them home. If last week you put yours in the offering plate, right on the back, the 10 you're going to pray for. Okay? But here, these are the 10 that you're going to not only pray for, but you're going to begin to intercede. Lord, use me. Use me in the transforming work that you want to do in their lives. It could be a mom, a dad, a brother, or sister, an uncle, an aunt. A relative, they need a transformational work of the Spirit of God in their life that can only come through Christ. And you're going to intercede for these on the other list, but you're going to say, these are the ones that I'm asking you, Lord, I, I'm going I'm to do what Jesus did in John 5. I'm going to walk along this path, and I'm going to watch for what you're doing and I'm going to see where you're actively working. And as you begin to provide opportunities in this situation, in this life, with this person, I'm going to walk through those in obedience, by faith, trusting you, empowered by you to speak as you tell me to speak, to be quiet when I'm supposed to be quiet, and to intercede for them as I become your instrument, your vessel to be used by you in the transforming work that you want to do in their life. Because, you see, you can pray for these people all day long, but if you're not looking for opportunities and asking God to give you an opportunity, be that vessel, that instrument that he would use for the transforming work that he wants to do in their lives, how are they going to be reached? Jesus told us to pray for the Lord of the harvest. And, and he wants us here today to go out into the field that he is preparing for the harvest and to use you to be his reaper. Sounds kind of creepy though, doesn't it? Reaper. watched any of those slasher movies, that's not a good thing. But he wants to use you. So let me ask you for just a minute. I know it's 12.05. I don't care. <laughs> I want you to just quickly write down 10 names right now. Right off the top of your head. Take your piece of paper out. Write some names. Start recording some names. Right now, God has placed some names on your heart, on your mind. He's calling them out by name, saying, these are people that I want you to reach. I want you to be the vessel. I want to use you to reach these people. I'm not saying you know how. I'm not saying you know when. I'm not saying you know exactly what to say. But there, there's a time and there's a moment as you wait on God like they did, you know, 
for Jesus to arrive in Simon Peter's home, and like they did for the Sabbath to be over, you're going to wait until God gives you the right time, the right opportunity to reach these people. You're going to be the person that says yes to God's call to be the, the vessel that Christ is going to use for that purpose. Mark, why don't you come up here and ready to give the invitation. Take just a moment. Do that, please. You can be a child and do this. You can be 80 years old and do this. And every one of us in between. In 2015, I'm convinced God wants to use you to reach somebody with the gospel of Jesus. What I'm praying for and longing for in this church is that we have every one of us an opportunity to walk with someone down this aisle to watch them publicly profess their faith in Christ, follow him in baptism, and see the transforming work of Christ take effect in their life. I'm praying that God gives you that opportunity because there's nothing in the world spiritually that's a better, better understanding than to know that God used you your testimony transform not just in this life but for eternity I know what it's like as a father I know what it's like as a pastor I know what it's like as a friend I want you sharing that with them I think God wants to use All right, let me ask you to stand, and here's our last question as we get ready to get to the invitation. Do I need the transforming power of Christ in my life? I don't know what you're going through today, but I know he does. And some of us need a movement of the Spirit of God in our life to transform our disease called sin. And if you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus and accepted him as your Savior and Lord, I'm here to tell you that Jesus can set you free. He can transcend your problem called sin and transform your life. We invite you to come if you've never made that decision. In another time, another place, if you've made that decision, we invite you to come. Let us celebrate the activity of God in your life. And let us join God working in and through you to continue that transforming work that he wants to do in your life. Your journey has just begun, and the first step to that journey is a public declaration of your intent to follow Jesus. And we invite you to come. Maybe you're on a journey and God is leading you to become a part of the church family and to be a part of what God is doing here and to join us in the effort of this transformational work that God wants us to do in Wichita. We invite you to come, join our church, become a part of this church family. Or maybe God burdened your heart with someone and just want to come and kneel at the altar and pray. Whatever God lays upon your heart as we sing together, as we lead, Invite you to come. Our pastors are here as we sing, as God leads. Come.